Prema Chodron, a teacher in the Tibetan tradition, said something that I find very inspiring in her book, When Things Fall Apart. She said, when things fall apart and we're on the verge of we know not what, the test of each of us is to stay on that brink and not concretize. It's an interesting proposition to stay on that brink and not concretize. What does it mean for us when things are challenging in some way, when things are difficult personally or on a wider scale in the world, when we're confronted with change on a very deep level or something very painful. It's so easy to slip into habitual patterns of coping, habitual responses, perhaps of denial or bitterness, resentment, We think that we're protecting ourselves with these responses, but it's a mistaken view. Concretizing in that way doesn't make us safe. It actually cuts us off from life, from the fullness of this experience of being human. Can we instead stay with the truth of what's happening, although it might be uncomfortable? Can we stay with uncertainty or boredom or restlessness or fear or a broken heart? I really feel that our meditation practice is a way that we learn to do that. So rather than thinking that something's wrong in our practice when uncomfortable states arise, and rather than doing whatever we can to avoid or get rid of those states, we learn to sit with it. We learn to be still, to be present with that full range of human experience without clinging, without resisting, without confusion. That's really what meditation is, making room for all of it, opening moment by moment, seeing more clearly. Out of that clear seeing, understanding grows. And as our understanding deepens and matures, It develops into wisdom, the wisdom that is a wellspring of the deepest peace or happiness. The Buddha pointed out in his teachings three particular aspects of experience as very important in the development of this kind of wisdom. Anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, selflessness. And it's said in the teachings that the full comprehension of these three characteristics by our own direct meditative experience constitutes liberating insight. So it's interesting to notice these in our experience, in our practice. Any one of them can be a doorway, a doorway into a deeper understanding, into wisdom. So you might notice if one is more clear for you, more readily apparent,
This is a chant that I learned on one of my retreats next door. Anicca vata sankara upada vaya damino upakituva nirujanti te sa upasamo sukho. And it means all conditioned things are impermanent. Understanding this brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. We have so many opportunities to get glimpses of this in our practice. I remember for myself, first beginning to understand that happiness wasn't dependent upon conditions, upon what was arising. As I think I've already mentioned, I used to try so hard in my practice to create certain pleasurable states, certain states that I liked, such as concentration or calm, happiness, and then to try to hold on to them. What I realized, of course, was that I couldn't make these states arise. And when they did arise, I couldn't make them last. So it took a little time of noticing that over and over until I began to let go, to be present when they were there, and to let go, to let things be, to let them pass. And I began to sense this other happiness, that was not dependent on conditions, the happiness of peace. So this understanding of change, of anicca, it really forms the bedrock of the Buddha's teaching. This is what he said about it. What is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. What has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. It reminds me of just a couple of days ago, I was walking with a couple of friends, one of whom is the director next door at the retreat center. And we were coming up the driveway at IMS, and he said, now look at the building and imagine it without the chimneys, because the chimneys are falling down. (laughs) And so they're going to remove the chimneys because they're not being used, except for the one that the furnace uses. And I looked at the building, and I just imagined the chimneys coming down. And it was interesting because immediately my mind went, oh, it's just the beginning. Eventually, the whole place will come down. And I said that, and the new, fairly new director said, oh, (laughs) not yet. (laughs) Another 30 years at least. (laughs) So we know it. We know it on a really basic level that things change. In a way, the fact of change is really all that we can truly know in this world. But how often do we resist it? You know, oh, wait a minute. I know for myself, being a passionate swimmer, I resist the change of summer to fall every year. And I've learned over the years better ways of working with it. A somewhat cynical friend of mine who used to be on staff told me that her approach was, in terms of thinking about summer in New England, you just had to think of it as a long weekend. (laughs) And, you know, I really put it into practice, and it helped a lot, because it kind of is that fleeting, or at least it feels that way, especially when you're trying to hold on. 
But that conditioning is really deep to try to hold on, to think that things will stay the same, that we have some kind of control. It's a setup for suffering. It's delusion. The ultimate delusion, of course, is the denial of our own change, the denial of death. It's really strong in this culture. We know it in theory, of course. No one here would deny that they're going to die. And yet, until we come face to face with it in some way, it's not very real. It's easy to look away. Last year, right around this time, at the end of January, the heavenly messenger of death became more apparent to me as a very dear old friend of mine, someone who was on staff here at the Forest Refuge, um, received a cancer diagnosis. And I had the good fortune of accompanying him on his journey with it through the diagnosis, through his illness, and then his death. He was actually able to stay here through that period of time, and a group of friends helped care for him. And now his ashes are buried just behind the hall here. So I often feel his presence really strongly in this place. And it reminds me that we just don't know. He certainly didn't know, just a little before a year ago, about how long we've got. It also reminds me so strongly about what's really important. It got so simple and so clear in that time with my friend, so basic. Really, it was so much about just showing up with each other, being kind, helping each other, sharing simple things like eating a meal together, taking a walk, spending time together. And I watched my friend's heart open so much during those months. Partly it was through being with what was so painful And partly it was through letting in all of the love that he was surrounded by, really letting it in. It was beautiful to watch. In a way, it was really a kind of grace that he knew the end was near for him, and he just went for it. We don't know what holds us back. Another friend told me once about um, a party that he went to for his grandmother, who was in her 90s, a big family event. And at some point during the party, he sat down with her in a quiet spot and asked her to tell him you know, what she had learned about life. And she pulled him up really close, and she said, look in my eyes. And he did. And then she blinked. <laughs> And that was her message. From her perspective, that's what it was like, just a blink. So sometimes reflecting on that, the preciousness of this human life, can inspire us in practice, can really provide a sense of spiritual urgency and a reminder about what's really important. But of course, getting in touch with the truth of change doesn't have to be so large or so dramatic as our whole life. We see this truth wherever we look, when we really look. So where is that lovely sitting you had at some point? Gone. Where's that storm that passed through the mind and the heart? Gone. 
What do we see when we really pay attention to a breath? Change. A flow of changing sensations. Or when we pay attention to a knee pain. Is it solid? Again, just a flow of change arising and passing so quickly. When we close our eyes and we go inside and we look really closely at our moment-to-moment experience, it's as though the very outlines of our body become less fixed, less solid. And when we start to understand this truth of change, of impermanence, that really change is what we are, is what everything around us is, it can loosen something up inside. It isn't meant to make us feel depressed or despairing, although at times it's possible that sadness or fear might arise when we first begin to see or when we very deeply open to the rapidity of change, that lack of solidity, that momentariness. This is a passage from Bertolt Brecht. We are traveling with tremendous speed toward a star in the Milky Way. A great repose is on the earth. My heart's a little fast. Otherwise, Everything's fine. It's a nice perspective, I think. Our hearts get a little fast sometimes when we feel that change. There's an ant crawling around (laughs) my talk. (laughs) It's kind of distracting. (laughs) So the realization of impermanence, which is available at any point, at any time, on so many levels, can be a gateway to liberation, to really deeply letting go, when we see the futility of holding on. We give up that struggle of trying to control, of grasping. As Ajahn Chah said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. So sometimes the times that we're struggling in practice can be a doorway into this understanding a kind of signal to pay attention. What's happening? See where you're caught. Find out for yourself what the Buddha was talking about. And it takes a certain kind of energy in the heart, courage to look sometimes. But when we're able to really look with a non-judgmental awareness, we can surrender to the truth of what's happening. And in that surrender is peace. All too often, however, we're trying to hold on. We're not ready to surrender. We're not ready to really let go. And because of this, we suffer. The Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. This is the first noble truth, that in this life there is suffering, there is pain. So this is dukkha, the second of these three characteristics of experience. And the Buddha defined three different types of dukkha. The first is on a more obvious or tangible level, pain, painful feeling. And in the teachings, it's called dukkha dukkha. 
This is the pain of life that we're perhaps most familiar with, the aches in the body, the pain of sickness, aging, the pain of death, the mental pain, our sorrows, depression, fear, anxiety, worry, or simply not getting what we want. Dukkha, dukkha. The second kind of dukkha is called viparinama dukkha. And this is the unsatisfactoriness of conditions that change. So even if we're experiencing pleasant conditions, positive things in our life, we also know that they're subject to change, that they're vulnerable, they're outside of our control, that there's no lasting security in those conditions. So the dukkha of pleasant experience is that it doesn't last. And this kind of dukkha is more hidden. It's not quite as easy to see as the first. And the third kind of dukkha is called sankhara dukkha. And this is referred to as the oppressive nature of life, the need to take care of ourselves, our bodies, our minds, Think about it. In a way, we're kind of high-maintenance beings. You know, there's a lot we need to do on a very regular basis over and over and over and over. Sometimes when I've been on retreat and gotten really quiet, really sensitive, I've experienced this kind of maintenance (laughs) as tiring, kind of exhausting at times, almost a sense of unbearableness of being. And I heard once this story that supposedly is a true story, that someone at the end of their life left a note that said, too much buttoning and unbuttoning. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of sad in a way, but it's also kind of funny. Especially at this time of year, I can relate. Just that sense of the endless round of tasks, chores, doing, being, becoming, survival as a human. This is really the experience of samsara on a smaller scale. So it's important, I think, to understand these different meanings of dukkha and to start to recognize them in our own experience. I think it's really a very common misunderstanding about dukkha, especially perhaps that last one, that life is suffering, which is a very um, rather pessimistic worldview, kind of gloomy. Who'd want to sign up for that? But was the Buddha saying that all of life is characterized by pain and suffering? No. But he was pointing out the inherently unsatisfactory nature of conditioned things. And that the deepest peace, the deepest happiness, is not to be found there. I once read an article by Pico Iyer about Buddhism in which he referred to meditation as an optimistic response to suffering. And his point was that through meditation, we help heal the problems that we've created in terms of our relationship to life. So the problem is not that the fact that things change, The problem is that we hold on. If we try to find lasting happiness 
in that which doesn't last, we will suffer. So coming to this understanding through our own experience is liberating. It transforms our relationship to life. That's the healing power of this practice. We all know, hopefully, I'm sure we all know, that life is made up of pleasant and unpleasant experience. And it's said in the teachings that the human life is a precious opportunity for practice because of this. That we have enough pleasant experience that we're buoyed, we're strong enough to practice. And there's enough unpleasant to inspire us to do it, to really look. So it's clear that the Buddha, of course, knew both pleasure and pain. Still, it's easy to misunderstand that acknowledgement, that deep acknowledgement of dukkha as somehow irreconcilable with joy or happiness or connection with life. A while back, Someone referred to me as a bhakti, which means someone who's devotional, a lover of God. And at first I thought, what? I'm not a bhakti. I'm a Buddhist. (laughs) And then when I thought about it, I thought, oh, I think he's on to something. That I do have that devotional quality. And I mentioned this to a friend who knows me really well, and he said, oh, yeah, you're a bhakti. It's just that you have a really big altar. And I quite like that. And it's true, my altar, you know, like perhaps many of us, is the natural world. You know, a sky full of stars on a night like this when it's so clear. It can make me weep at times with just being touched with that beauty. So I wondered when I thought about that aspect of myself, could I have that devotional quality, that deep connection, and still really understand dukkha? How did they fit together? And what I saw was that they're not contradictory. Especially when I looked at my relationship with the natural world, I saw that in those moments where my heart is really open, where I'm really touched, it's just a certain quality of being very present, undistractedly present, seeing and experiencing really clearly without a lot of the filters that are often there. Just a sense of being awake, present. There's a deep peace and a great joy in that. And nature, for me anyway, is a great teacher in terms of trusting that sense of presence, opening in that way. It's easy to really be present and see clearly, to allow it to change. There's not much of a sense of I in those moments when we're really very present in nature with something beautiful, something striking. There's just that openness, that witnessing, and a really strong feeling of interconnection with life. I'm often reminded of the Native American saying in moments like that, It's a good day to die. Just that sense of completeness in the moment. There can be a stunning clarity in those times when awareness is present and we're not trying to hold on. We're not resisting. We're just very present, very clear. 
But of course, our conditioning with unpleasant experience, with painful experience, is to resist it, to fight it. How often do we do that? Just in our meditation practice, let alone in the rest of life. We do everything in our power to avoid painful feeling, to avoid suffering, vulnerability, insecurity. It's exhausting and it's futile because we are vulnerable. Life is insecure and we do experience pain. So what is it like? What happens when we acknowledge that aspect, dukkha, in our lives? I know for myself, in coming to this practice, it was such a relief. It was like people talked about it, acknowledged it. It was really very much what brought me to practice. The Buddha taught that it's craving that's the root of our suffering. We like the pleasant experience and we try to hold on, thinking that if we string enough pleasant experiences together, we'll be happy. And this is the if-only mind. If only I could have a better sitting. If only I was a bit younger and my body didn't ache so much. Whatever it is, all the if-onlys, then we would be happy. But craving is endless. It's only a temporary relief that we get when some pleasant taste or sight or sound or sensation or mind state appears. And then, if we're craving, if craving is there and we're not seeing it clearly, we want more. And when we're longing for something else, or resisting what is, we suffer. So true relief from dukkha is the abandonment of craving. And we learn to abandon craving by being with what is. The pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral. Being with what is, moment by moment. In opening to the dukkha, opening to what's painful, to the unsatisfactory nature of life, we're actually opening to the whole of life more fully because we're not avoiding anymore. We're not resisting. Many years ago in the 80s when I was on staff at IMS, and doing a staff retreat there, which is what they're doing right now, someone posted this note on the bulletin board that I found really moving. I don't know who wrote it, where it came from, but it said, What is this hunger I feel in the marrow of my bones? What is this thirst in the center of my heart? It is the hunger for love and the thirst for liberation. Let me not be confused. We can trust that hunger, that thirst, that inclination toward happiness, toward freedom, like a homing instinct. We just need to learn to recognize in our lives when it's misdirected. The third characteristic of existence, anatta, refers to the selfless quality of all phenomena. The Buddha taught that neither within the bodily and mental phenomena of existence nor outside of them can be found anything that in the ultimate sense could be regarded as a self-existing real entity or abiding substance. Understanding this leads to a great freedom of mind and heart. Not understanding it 
leads to suffering. And the Buddha taught that one of the causes of suffering is the wrong view of self. But it's not some tenet that we need to ascribe to, to believe in the idea of selflessness. It's much more of an exercise, something we can use as a way of looking into our own experience and seeing for ourselves. Larry Rosenberg, my first meditation teacher and a dear friend, told me this story about his, one of his teachers, a Korean teacher, Song Sunim. And he said that Song Sunim was interviewed on a radio show many years ago. And if you were ever heard Song Sunim's teachings, you, you would know that he quite often spoke about don't know mind. And he also had a pretty heavy accent. So apparently, at the end of this radio interview, the interviewer thanked him and said there was just one thing that he didn't understand. And he wanted to know, what did Sunim mean by donut mind? (laughs) (laughs) And Larry said that Sunim always landed on his feet, and he just laughed, and he said, oh, yes, donut mind. It's because at the heart of the Buddha's teachings, you find emptiness, (laughs) just like a donut. (laughs) One of the simplest and most profound of the Buddha's teachings is also one that's very easy to remember and that comes up a lot in my practice. It's said that when this teaching was given, it was given to a man who went searching for the Buddha and found him on his alms round. And he begged the Buddha for his teachings. And the Buddha told him he could come to hear a talk or whatever. And the man said, no, 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 it's got to be right now. He was in a really big hurry. And so the Buddha gave him the following very pithy teaching. He said, in the seeing, there is just what is seen. In hearing, there is just what is heard. In smelling, there is just what is smelled. In tasting, there is just what is tasted. In feeling, there is just what is felt. In thinking, there is just what is thought. Through our own practice, we come to know the truth of this teaching that in each moment there is just what is arising. Whatever mental or physical phenomena is arising and passing. All of it, including this body, including this mind, including the whole of what we call I. So as mindfulness deepens, as practice develops, we start to see that we're not who we think we are. We see that these arising sensations and feelings and thoughts, none of it is I. Am I the sensations that I call me? Am I the thoughts that come and go over the course of a day? I hope not. So this is true for the whole of our bodies and our minds. When we really look, we begin to see that this sense of self is a mental construct. But it's a very deeply habituated one. We learn it really early on. We're taught 
to identify with our roles in life. We identify with our degrees, our jobs, our family status. I remember on one retreat I was doing, and I remember where I was walking in the driveway and just being very aware of sensation and just seeing the sensations arise and pass. And at some point, suddenly, having a very strong feeling of genderlessness. It really just was an idea at that moment. I am a woman. Really, it was just this flow of experience, sensations. It was actually kind of freeing in the moment to feel that. So when we look, when we look into our own experience, are we the same person we were when we walked into the room half an hour ago? Or that same person we were when we woke up this morning? There's some kind of continuity. But what is this thing we call I, this experience? And again, touching into this deeply, opening into it, sometimes brings up some unsettled feeling. Some fear can arise. It's as though we're starting to loosen our grip on the concepts that we've held so tightly. And it feels like we're going to fall into a void. At least it can at times. But it's not as though we disappear. And another really beautiful way to think about this quality of selflessness is in terms of interconnection or interdependence, that we're not separate. This is a passage from um, one of Ladakh's scholars, uh, Buddhist scholars. His name is Tashi Rabkyas. And he said this about emptiness. Take any object, like a tree. When you think of a tree, you tend to think of it as a distinct, clearly defined object. And on a certain level, it is. But on a more important level, the tree has no independent existence. Rather, it dissolves into a web of relationships. The rain that falls on its leaves, the wind that causes it to sway, the soil that supports it. All form a part of the tree. Everything in the universe helps make the tree what it is. It cannot be isolated. Its nature changes from moment to moment. It is never the same. This is what we mean when we say things are empty, that they have no independent existence. When the Buddha was asked how to live freely in this world, his reply was, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Clinging to the sense of self creates suffering. We attach to some current view of self, like good health or a youthful body or a calm mind. And it's a setup for suffering because it will change. Thoughts, memories, plans, sensations, somehow it all comes together and we think of it as self. But this is wrong view, a deeply conditioned wrong view. The idea of self is our most pervasive delusion, the opposite of insight, 
not really seeing things as they are. And in our practice, learning to see more clearly helps to lift that veil of delusion. It helps dispel ignorance. The mind tends to create a deeply conditioned sense of self when there's perception without enough mindfulness. When we recognize the surface appearance of things. This is sometimes easier to see in terms of how we meet new people. We meet someone and based on just the sight of them, we come up with these ideas about who they are. We think we know something about them. We create concepts and then our perceptions become limited by this. We also do it with our perceptions of ourselves. We settle for the surface recognition and we don't go deeply enough to see beyond that. But practice is a way that we start to go deeper than that veneer of self, that surface recognition. And it's also helpful in our practice to just notice the way this idea, this concept, this construct of self comes into being, the way it forms. Sometimes I just use a mental note when I find that sense of identification with some aspect of experience. And I'll just note, ah, selfing, selfing. Seeing when perception and thought is constructing that sense of self. And it happens a lot. Sometimes it's really shocking. I remember going into an interview once years ago and saying, every thought is self-referenced. I was amazed. It was like every thought created a sense of self. But it's also good to recognize when it's not there. Good to acknowledge when it's just a moment of seeing clearly. A moment of really being mindful. Of knowing sensation as sensation. Or feeling as feeling. Or thought as thought. And not I. And we're doing this as we practice, gaining insight into the true nature of things. And that insight, that wisdom, is liberating, is freeing. It's said in the teachings that wisdom manifests in these three ways. The clear seeing of impermanence, the understanding of suffering, and the awareness of the selflessness of all phenomena. So we're not really losing anything as we come to understand anatta. In letting go of that limited sense of self as something separate, something unchanging, we actually gain so much. We see that we're deeply connected, like the tree, to all of life. We aren't separate. So I'd like to close on this coldest night of the winter so far with a very summery poem called White Flowers. It's by Mary Oliver. Last night in the fields, I lay down in the darkness to think about death, but instead I fell asleep as if in a vast and sloping room filled with those white flowers that open all summer, sticky and untidy in the warm fields. When I woke, the morning light was just slipping in front of the stars, and I was covered with blossoms. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if my body went diving down under the sugary vines 
in some sleep-sharpened affinity with the depths, or whether that green energy rose like a wave and curled over me. I pushed them away, but I didn't rise. Never in my life had I felt so plush or so slippery or so resplendently empty. Never in my life had I felt myself so near that porous line where my body was done with and the roots and the stems of flowers began. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.